0: I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.
1: Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing
2: or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back. And enjoy.
0: Chelmsford Police Station. My name is Jeremy Bamba. My father, Neville, he just called me. He kept saying Sheila's gone berserk with a gun. Just berserk. Please, you must, you, you must come and help. A gun? Who's Sheila? Uh, where's the location, please? Sheila, she's my sister. Uh, Tolson Darcy White House, one. Please come quick, help. There are kids inside. Okay, okay. Yeah, please stay calm. Uh, the police are on their way now.
2: Uh, uh, Jeremy, um, at what time did Neville call you? back to another I Can a podcast. is episode number seven of series four. I'm Tom Norris and I'm joined once again by that chap that lives down the road making a racket, Ben Carter.
1: Sorry, sorry.
2: I'm Tom Norris and I'm joined once again by the man that lives down the road. Avoid his garden. It's Ben Carter.
1: <laughs> These shouldn't be getting me. These shouldn't be getting me
2: i'm tom norris and i'm joined once again by the man that lives down the road don't kick a ball in his garden because he won't let you get it it's ben carter
1: i definitely won't let you <laughs> fuck's sake i'm so sorry i'm so sorry that was really good oh oh there you go very sorry about that slight bang for those joining us uh, via audio um, my mic arm detached um oh, your mic dropped my mic drops. Yes, so there's some sort of you know weird energy in the room today. It's going to be a fun episode.
2: Yeah, it does feel a bit, a bit odd in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Really I'm picking weird. up on it. I'm picking yeah, up there's on it. A bit it. of a vibe in here today. But before we get into a little bit of housekeeping, if you don't already, please follow us on our socials at Could Murder a Pod on Instagram, on Twitter, and we've got a Facebook as well.
1: Very much like we did in series three, we are at some point going to have a vote for our Halloween episode of this series. Yeah, we're going to let you guys decide for us because
2: we for some reason we forgot again, and we you to help us pick it.
1: So there you go. So get yourselves over to Instagram at could murder a Pod. Uh, we post stuff every day. We repost stuff every day as well, pretty much if, if we get enough people tagging us in stories. So, so they tag we, us we as well. We post
2: your stuff, we don't repost our stuff every day, because that'd be mental. That'd be horrible. Yeah. yeah, it would be. And if you can't get enough of the content, we do have a Patreon, and over there we have over 40 episodes in there now. Minisodes varying between 20 to 40 minutes in length roundabout. Mm,
1: absolutely, and they're available on video and audio platforms. Um, we've done some very big cases recently as well, so we've done the case of Raul Mote uh, the Jonestown Massacre the Dyatlov Pass uh, the case of Derek Bird uh, the Snapchat murders all just to name a few that's too many that's too many I right? feel
2: intimidated to even go on there now
1: Dear me well it's going to get worse because we post new episodes on Patreon every single what, week what do you guys just pick them then or something well let me let me stop you right there no oh we do votes oh <gasps> That's exciting. So what the audience can interact with us and pick the cases. Lots of interaction, Tom. It gets a bit messy at times because there's so much going on over there. But you know, stay on top of it. Yeah, and all episodes available on audio, available on video. It's just one pound a week, so sweet little deal there. I think. well you're not even a patron. Though. That's why I, need I to wouldn't it. let me. It wouldn't let me. I tried I think Make a new account and do it. I tried that. If you really like it, why don't you do
2: it? If you like it so much. Anyway, and if you guys want to support us in another way, we do have a merch store. Which we have a hat,
1: we have a mug,
2: a pack of stickers, and a lovely bag. Which your totes
1: enjoy. <laughs> Tote back. So yeah, we really hope uh, everybody enjoyed last week's episode, the case of Fred and Rose West. We are back with another very British true crime case.
2: Yeah, the Fred and Rose one was a big case. It, was, it came second in our last year's uh, vote for the the case. built beaten by John Boney, and we so we knew you guys wanted it. There's been lots of requests for it. Thank you so much for all the lovely
1: comments on that. And this week, uh, it's a case that was also frequently voted for in our in our poll for the previous series. It's the case of the White House Farm murders. And this one, Tom, I think it's possibly the most interesting case I've researched so far in terms of things going on and fingers being pointed. Um, yeah. Oh, that's a very big claim. It's another bit of a mystery
2: one, even though it's solved. It's, is it solved? Yeah. It's like the John Bonnet one in terms of a slightly different uh, episode, this one, because we're kind of talking about theories and speculation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're looking forward to getting into that. And we've timed it either perfectly or terribly, because Louis through has just produced a documentary all about this, which is been released on the day that we're filming this, yeah. so we've not been able to watch that. So if he breaks the case in that, <laughs> well, you know. You know.
1: <laughs> Cheers, Louis. <laughs> So yeah, if you are if you are discovering us from that particular series, how did Louis do? How are we doing? And um, you know, from what we've read, Louis very much pointing the finger of uh, who we'll go on to discuss, Jeremy Bamber's innocence. Um, so we're going to go on to kind of uh, paint a bit of a picture on all the individuals involved. Make up your own minds, guys. We're going to share our thoughts. So yeah, so we're going to take you through it. We're going to uh, talk about all the members of the family, all of the key uh, individuals involved in this case, and let you make your own minds up while we try and make car minds up and producer Dan puts his mind to the test. Boom, boom, boom. How are you feeling about that, Dan?
0: Buzzing.
2: Well, well, let's get into the family history first, Ben, and kind of talk about each member of the family, a little bit about them, so we can set the scene.
1: So before we get on to the people, let's talk about the property. Uh, so the White House Farm is a farmhouse set amongst 300 acres of farmland in Tolls Hunt, Darcy, Essex. At the time of this particular case, the house belonged to June and Neville Bamber, and the 300 acres of land accompanying the property was uh, farmland that the family actually owned and worked on. It's a massive, massive property, so it was not uncommon for extended family, friends uh, to come and stay at the property, but they also had farm workers and housekeepers, so it was very often a, a busy setting, uh, both internally and and externally of the house the whole case surrounds six key people who we're going to go on to talk about now
2: all right so neville and june bamba um ralph neville bamba known as neville was born on the 8th of june 1924 he was a farmer local magistrate and former raf pilot
1: yeah as tom mentioned former raf pilot he actually uh, joined the royal air force and flew mosquitoes in the north africa during world war ii i had to google those planes and they are cool looking planes yeah yeah really cool looking planes Annoying at a barbecue though. Neville would actually go on to break his back in an air crash during the war, and this resulted in a year spent in hospital. Eesh. So Neville very well known and very well regarded in the local community. He was described as the perfect gentleman with a light hearted character who enjoyed socialising.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people in the local community would go to him if they had kind of questions, wanted some advice. He was kind of a very well rounded, level headed guy.
1: Neville mm-hmm. was... headed guy. Yep. Sorry. But I was all right. Was early. Got a thumb up from Dan. If you don't apologise when you make a joke, I know, but it was early and kind of jarring.
2: You do interrupt, um, <laughs> but yeah, and people would go to him for advice, and you know he was kind of a guy that would, would be happy to help.
1: And there is uh, an ITV series called The White House Farm Murders, and the casting they have got for the guy that plays Neville, wow, spot on. So Neville would go on to meet his wife-to-be June during his early 20s, and the pair would go on to get married in 1949, both at the age of 25. And June was actually born in June, the 3rd of June, 1924.
2: They were unable to have children themselves, which led them to later on adopt, which we'll get get to that. And they were both very Christian. um, And she apparently was, was... particularly Mm -hmm. uh, Christian. uh, Very God-fearing. Very God-fearing and um, very kind of disciplined with their approach with that. June um, also suffered from depression and she was treated in a psychiatric hospital in uh, 1982. And during that time, she apparently got very aggressively
1: into religion. June would also play her part to help during the war. Um, She went on to work in offices locally, but also would join the female army and navy and was actually posted at one point to Calcutta. After the war, June became a homemaker and took part in community activities with her local church and women's institute, including Meals on Wheels, and as a couple, June and Neville loved to play tennis. Fifteen, love that. So June was also a very keen gardener. She liked to make arrangements in the local church. Obviously, as Tom had mentioned, very, very heavily religious lady. Um, She would actually be appointed a church warden later in life as well. The couple would actually go on to adopt two children from uh, the Church of England's Children's Society. Uh, And the first one we're going to talk about is Sheila. So Sheila, when she was born, she was actually called Phyllis Jean Caffel, and she was born the 18th of July,
2: 1957. Her biological mother was 18 at the time, and she was called Christine, and she was actually the daughter of a senior chaplain to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Christine's father made her place her baby up for adoption, um, and in doing that, she went to the Church of England's uh, Children's Society two weeks after the birth. And then Phyllis was adopted by the Bambers at three months old. Um, the chaplain had known Neville in the R.E.F. and selected the Bambers from a list of prospective adopters. And it seems the Bambas didn't like the name
1: Phyllis, so they named her Sheila. As a youngster, Sheila was uh, very bright, regarded as a very bright child with aspirations of going on to be a model. However, she was also uh, a gifted writer with a particular skill at writing short stories. So the Bambas were a very wealthy family and they did send both of their adopted children to some very exclusive schools. So she went for a, uh, to a school in Eastbourne called Myra House. However, she was expelled from this school and it's not Clear as to why that happened. She then attended boarding school in Norwich and basically fell in love with the place as she found it very easy to socialise. And this is kind of a, a theme that will will run through uh, Sheila's later life. But she um, basically made a lot of friends, settled into the school really quickly, and and performed really well academically. So Sheila would actually rebel under June quite a lot. Um, obviously, had been
2: very religious and very kind of strict with her ways and. In, you know kind of growing up you like to rebel from your parents um, and once June actually caught um, Sheila having sex with a farmhand in a field and June would then refer to her as the devil's child which is quite a firm thing there. Powerful words. As been mentioned, Sheila worked as a model in, in the world of fashion and she went to Tokyo for a short period of time. But apparently her lifestyle, she wasn't able to keep up with it. So being very social, the money spent and she even apparently dabbled, allegedly dabbled in some drugs during that time as well. So even though she was getting paid fairly all right for this work, yeah, it kind of took her into places that maybe was, wasn't was great for her. Um, she also was suffering with some mental health difficulties as well. So the drugs taken as well all combined together wasn't the best
1: best for her. So she's young, she's attractive, she's travelling the world, she's working as a as a model. She has got, you know, there is a slightly darker side to this in that she's been exposed to the world of drugs um, and she has have fought her own kind of mental health battles during that time. But the family very much have the plan for Sheila that she's going to marry a, a rich eligible bachelor and go on to have a family of her own.
2: But although this was her parents intentions, this didn't quite go to plan. At 17, Sheila found out she was pregnant by her then boyfriend, Colin Caffell, who was a penniless artist. And June and who obviously uh, we've said very religious um, they uh, arranged for her to have an abortion following this abortion Sheila returned to her studies but later decided to train to become a hairdresser
1: so at the age of 20 Sheila again becomes pregnant with Colin and uh, this time the couple decide to marry and they get married at Chelmsford Registry Office in May of 1977 however this pregnancy would result in a miscarriage uh, in the sixth month and as a result to support Sheila through this Neville and June decided to purchase her a garden flat in Carlingford in Hampstead so a very affluent area of London there, to uh, to basically allow her and Colin the time and space to recuperate.
2: So sadly the couple would go on to suffer one more miscarriage before um, Sheila did become pregnant with twins, Daniel Nicholas, who were born in June 1979. After the boys were born, Sheila lived off welfare and low-paid jobs such as cleaning and waitressing. Uh, but sadly the couple would actually go on to divorce in May 1982 after
1: reports of Colin cheating. The the difficulties in the relationship were having a, a profound effect on Sheila's mental health during this time, which would continue to decline. And on one occasion, Colin actually left Sheila's 21st birthday party with another woman, um, which uh, resulted in Sheila needing hospital treatment after she smashed a uh, window with her fist. So after the divorce as well, uh, Neville and June bought Sheila another flat, uh, this time in Moorshead Mansions, made a veil. And Colin would then go on to help raise the boys from his own home. Uh, so there was kind of a brief moment where um, the family would poten- potentially suggest the boys go into um, kind of foster care and and, and daycare, um, which obviously had a profound impact then again on Sheila, who was very much Set on, these are my boys, I'm going to raise them. Also, another
2: thing to note, her ex-husband Colin, he wasn't a huge fan of her parents' effect they had on the children, being very religious, making the boys kneel and pray. He wasn't a fan of that at all. So um, he did get custody of the kids, but he did let Sheila see them. And and, um, yeah, the parents, you know, if she was going for an episode, would kind of prompt the idea of not complete foster put them to foster family, but even just for a day or two, yeah, just give her a bit of a break from, from the kids. But there's also a report from the social services, apparently, that Sheila did neglect the children and had they had unexplained injuries, including burns and falls.
1: Yeah, this was a part that was very much argued, I think, again, during the later trial as well, because there's never any clear evidence of this and it, it was suggested that she wasn't capable of that. But also there are people that say, no, you know, she smashed think, windows. She yeah,
2: was... I mean, when we're doing the research for this, you, you, you basically... It's kind of very similar to the John Bonay case in regards to who, you, what you watch, what you listen to, who they think is guilty, and what, what information they might leave out or information they might lean on more than others. Um, so a lot of this, yeah, it, it can be you can see find this information in some places, not on others. So a lot yeah. of it is in the conjecture kind of the uh, category. So after the divorce, Sheila kind of wanted to start kind of a new life for herself. She made a new friendship group. She was given the playful nickname Bambi, and we became involved in partying, drugs, and older men. One of her waitressing jobs was at a place. Called school dinners, where the waitresses dressed up as schoolgirls. Sheila's mental health did uh, continue to decline, with episodes of banging her head against walls and becoming agitated to the point where one of her boyfriends feared for her safety. So she was referred to a psychiatrist at St Andrews uh, Hospital in Northampton, And Ferguson, uh, the doctor there, said she was in an agitated and psychotic state, diagnosing a schizoaffective disorder characterised by disturbance of thinking and perception. He said she was paranoid and believed the devil had taken her over and given her the power to project evil onto others, including her sons. She believed she could make them have sex and cause violence with her.
1: So, yeah, Sheila actually did, in some close circles, refer to her, her twin boys as the devil's children, which was kind of a play on the fact of, what uh, June had referred to her as. So as Tom said, she was seeing a GP and at the time was uh, was prescribed some antipsychotic drugs.
2: So Dr Ferguson would go on to say that uh, apparently she did say she also believed she was capable of murdering them uh, or getting them to kill others. And she spoke about suicide, though Dr Ferguson did not regard her as a suicide risk. So yeah, there's lots to unpack there. And obviously just kind of shows what kind of um, mindset she was in. And also the fact that you imagine those kind of struggles she's having and mixing with crowds and taking certain drugs like cocaine that kind of thing is going to be really detrimental
1: definitely and keep this in mind as we go on to talk about uh, what eventually would happen but also keep it in mind in the context of when we go on to describe jeremy's childhood and his upbringing so in terms of uh, daniel and nicholas Caffle, so there's not much um to to say about the twins um they were six years old at the time of what we're going to go in, on to discuss and um, they took a lot of joy in trying to kind of dupe people when they went up to them to say which twin is which, can you tell us apart, who is who. And they, they uh, weren't identical twins so it's really easy, so straight away.
2: No, they were identical twins. And they that made it that's, what, that's, tricky, why, that's why it worked.
1: It's just playing so the twins very much disliked staying at the farm partly due to obviously all of the kneeling and praying they were forced to do but also the fact that daniel had recently become a vegetarian and was worried about being forced to eat meat on the farm good daniel boy so now we're going to go on to talk about jeremy bamber uh, the lead figure in this case
2: so jeremy neville bamber was born jeremy paul marsham on the 13th of january 1961 his biological parents were juliet dorothy wheeler who was a vicar's daughter who had an affair with a marriage sergeant major in the British Army, Leslie Brian Marsham. And Marsham eventually became a controller at Buckingham Palace.
1: So the couple gave up Jeremy for adoption to the Church of England Children's Society when he was just six weeks old. His biological parents would later marry and had other children. And as Tom said, his father would become a senior member of staff at Buckingham Palace. You can only imagine knowing that you've been put up for adoption to then see your, your biological parents go on and have another family that that must leave you with a slight sense of, I guess, rejection or and perhaps even some abandonment issues. Definitely.
2: Neville and June Bamba sent him to Gresham School, a boarding school in Norfolk, and then college in Colchester. Um, He wasn't a big fan of going to the boarding school, but he he was made to go there. So Neville and June were very open to him with um, the fact that he was adopted and he told close mates about it when he was at school. But um, as cruel as children can be, they kind of spread that around and then he was actually being bullied and they were calling him the
1: bastard. So Jeremy would actually be described by the headmaster of the school as a loner, not popular, but also sharp tongued so although he was being bullied and although they were being you know very unfriendly to him, he still had um he always had to get the last word it seemed and this is something that kind of is the opposite to Sheila in terms of she was loving school, she was loving boarding school, she was having a very good social life jeremy a bit more closed off. I'd always take that with a pinch of salt though they interview a headmaster of a school which had lots and lots of
2: children at. And they're asking their opinion of him. And they're not going to go, he was a breath of fresh air. (laughs) They're going to say the kind of negative little things and how much the interaction that she had with the kid. Yeah. You always have to take it with a pinch of salt because it's just feeding into the narrative.
1: Outside of school, when he was back on the farm, he used to torment his God-fearing mother with rats. Um, So apparently she was petrified of rats. And Jeremy would catch them on the farm and bring them into the farmhouse just to torment her.
2: So as the headmaster said, which might might not be true, the fact that he was a bit of a loner, he got very into his music, maybe as some form of escape and very into the new, the new romantic kind of style. And he would even apparently work on the farm dressed in his new romantic gear just to kind of irk his parents and maybe a bit shock factor for people seeing him driving around in a tractor dressed in a, his new romantic clubber.
1: Definitely. So he was uh, very much one for rebelling um, and that, that kind of counterculture movement that Tom referenced. But you, you've also got to think in his head, he's been put up for adoption almost immediately, six weeks. Then his adoptive parents have sent him off to boarding school st- straight away. So he's got to be... F- we not only six weeks. Well, not, not, Yeah, that would have been... <laughs> imagine that. Um, the teacher guy, he was, a, he was a handful in class. From his side of things, he might feel a sense of no, no sense of belonging.
2: Definitely, yeah. I mean, you've yeah. As you said, he's been rejected by your birth parents, and then essentially, parents trying to mould you into their religious uh, ways, which if you don't agree with, you kind of feel like you're being forced into this. And then yeah, they send you off to another school. It's mm-hmm. so like yeah, it must be very hard to kind of deal with that uh, being moved about as much as he was. Um, he did leave school with no qualifications, which displeased Neville, but managed to pass seven O levels at Sixth Form College in Colchester. So he did. He apparently he was clever. He he's just, yeah, he was
1: couldn't really be bothered. Yeah, essentially, yeah. His rebellious nature would very much continue into his teenage years. He actually ended up growing and selling weed on the farm, very much to his uh, his mother's dislike. Um, what was growing some Mary Jane? So mother absolutely chastised him for that. Um, and as we said, extended family members would regularly visit the farm. Jeremy's cousins would describe him as a spoilt brat who would sulk for hours if he didn't get his way. He was also a nasty piece of work and got joy from allegedly abusing animals on the farm. But again, according to his cousins and school friends, uh, Jeremy was sexually abused by older boys at the boarding school. Yeah, a lot of the documentaries you find there's
2: one particular cousin who seems to pop up in them.
1: And he's got a very uh, negative opinion
2: of Jeremy. So Jeremy would go go on to set up home in the cottage at 9 Head Street, Goldhanger, uh, which is three and a half miles away from the parents' farmhouse. But it's still, it never owned the cottage and Bamba lived there rent-free. It took five minutes to drive by car from the cottage to the parents' home and by bicycle 15 minutes at least. So yeah, he was on the grounds. If he did hate his parents as much, you would have thought that he would move away. Yeah, he was living on the grounds there rent-free and Jeremy apparently hated the farm. But his father's will cut him off unless he stayed a farmer
1: there you go and i think around this time would have been when sheila was getting her flats bought in kind of exclusive areas of london so he's very very envious of that the model lifestyle that she was living he used to go with her to london on some occasions and kind of hang in that uh you know that high high society group of people the reason why neville actually gave the fact that he sent jeremy away to boarding school was the fact that
2: he felt it inappropriate for jeremy to go to a local school with the village children because one day he might have to employ them on his farm so that's like at least it gives a bit of context there it's not just sending them away yeah but that is very much going from a young age you're going to be doing this job when you grow up this is going to be
1: your this is going to be your future here's one for you though tom go on uh jeremy's cousins you know they've said a lot about him already but they would also refer to him as the cuckoo do you know why Please tell me and please tell the audience, Ben. Allegedly because cuckoo birds lay their eggs in other birds' nests, forcing other birds to essentially raise the cuckoo. The more you know. Jeremy's local and favourite drinking spot was called the Frog and Bean Pub. And Jeremy drank here for free because he gave the owners potatoes from the farm. So if there are any pub owners listening to the podcast right now, big fans of true crime. He probably gave them some weed as well. So probably had some baked potatoes there as well. Or mash, hash,
2: could, <clears throat> or hash, hash potato.
1: So as Tom mentioned, uh, Jeremy, you know, if he didn't remain working on the farm, uh, Neville had allegedly threatened to cut him from the will. So very much the plan for Jeremy here was where Sheila, they were hoping, would go off and marry Rich. They wanted Jeremy to very much continue to work, continue to graft. And I think they were trying to kind of shake out that kind of new romantic rebellious streak in him. Um, but they didn't have a lot of luck.
2: So that's the scene set. You've got the two adopted children there, uh, both with their own issues. Sheila with mental health issues, Jeremy with his own issues about abandonment and also uh, feeling forced in the situation, having to remain at the farm. But we're going to go into the timeline now and deal what happened on the fateful night. The 4th of August 1985, Sheila Cathell, the adoptive daughter of Neville and June Bamber, arrives at White House Farm with her sons, Daniel and Nicholas. She was seen to be behaving normally. The two farm workers and the housekeeper noticed nothing unusual about her visit, they even said that she seemed happy. Sheila planned to stay for the week before returning to her home in Maida Vale.
1: So the 6th of August 1985, Jeremy Bamber arrives at the farm. He lived only a five minute drive away from his parents in a cottage that was owned by his parents. During this visit, Neville Evelyn June suggested to Sheila that the boys be placed in daytime foster care with a family local to White House Farm. Sheila did not seem bothered by the suggestion as she would rather stay in London. The boys had been in foster care before so it wasn't a shock to Sheila. So this is very much the opinion and story of Jeremy Bamber at the time um, stating that the whole family were kind of for the idea of the the grandchildren to be placed into foster care while Sheila continued to recover and he's saying that there was no repercussion of this suggestion.
2: So now we're going to move into times of that day. So 9.30pm, a farm worker heard Jeremy or someone leave Around this time, Barbara Wilson, the farm secretary, phoned Neville and noticed his usual even temper was amiss. She had the feeling that she had interrupted an argument. Around 10pm, June's sister phoned and spoke to Sheila, who she thought seemed quiet, then to June, who seemed
1: normal. So between the hours of 12am and 3pm, which is an estimation, there is a struggle at the farmhouse. Neville Bamba is shot eight times, six times to the head and face. Shots seem to have been fired when the rifle was a few inches from his skin. He is shot four times upstairs. The remaining shots are fired in the kitchen, including the fatal shot. There are two wounds to Neville's right side and two to the top of his head, which would probably have resulted in unconsciousness. The left side of his lip was wounded, his jaw was fractured and his teeth, neck and larynx were damaged. So Neville's injuries included black eyes and a broken nose, linear bruising to the cheeks, lacerations to the head, linear type bruising to the right forearm, bruising to the left wrist and forearm and free circular burn type marks to the back at the top of his spine. The linear marks were consistent with Neville having being struck with a long, blunt object, possibly a gun. So notably, and we'll go on to describe the rest of the scene, Neville has very much been on the receiving end of the worst uh, kind of a, a, a beating, either before or after he was murdered. Um, and one thing that we wanted to talk about earlier is that Neville was a very large stature, yeah, so um, tall, very tall. Um, obviously, military background can probably fend for himself, but he is he has received quite a quite a drastic beating there.
2: June is shot seven times. One shot to her forehead between her eyes, and this was fired from under a foot away. That and another shot to the right side of her head caused her a quick death. There were also shots to the right side of her lower neck, her right forearm, and two injuries on the right side of her chest and right knee. She died in her nightdress lying on the floor by the door of the master bedroom. Sheila's sons, Daniel and Nicholas, were shot whilst in bed in Sheila's childhood bedroom. Daniel had been shot five times in the back of the head, four times with the gun held within one foot of his head, and once from over two feet away. Nicholas had been shot three times, all contact or close proximity shots. One of the boys was still sucking his thumb when he died. And there's a famous image from this room. um, It's carved into the cupboard. It says, I hate this place. Um, Sheila also died in the master bedroom. She was shot twice under the chin, one of them in her throat, which would have eventually killed her. However, she was also shot at closer range. The second shot hit her brain, killing Sheila instantly. So obviously this is how all the bodies were found. And it's estimated this all happened between 12 and 3 a.m. But there's a lot of different theories about exactly what happened with Sheila and when. So... Um, the timeline it does kind of as we said before there's lots of different ideas about this case and exactly what happened so the timeline we're following here will point out when there's slight differences in certain people's opinions.
1: Yeah and and most people believe that there's no possibility of an outside or kind of external culprit and that very much it's either Jeremy or Sheila Um, so again keep that in mind but there's yeah as Tom said lots and lots of conjecture. So on the 7th of August 1985 at 3.26am Jeremy Bamber rang Chelmsford local police station. Not the 999 number, but he actually would have called them directly. So imagine like getting that out of Yellow Pages or something like that. Um, He called to report that his father, Neville, had just phoned frantically to say that Sheila was going berserk with a semi-automatic rifle. Jeremy said that the line then went dead in the middle of the call. So 3.56am, a British
2: telecom operator checked the White House farm line and found that the line was open. The operator could hear a dog barking. Jeremy drove to the farmhouse, as did three officers from Witham Police Station, who noticed that Jeremy had been driving much more slowly than them. They passed him and arrived at the farmhouse one or two minutes before him. He was known to be a fast driver. The group waited outside the house for the tactical firearms unit to arrive. So uh, on that, the, the, the documentary I was watching, which was very much Jeremy was guilty. They were saying it's strange he was driving slowly, but if he's driving to a place where someone's got a gun... I can understand him waiting for the police to overtake him and then go there. I completely understand that. And when the police arrived there, um, to our US listeners, uh, the, the UK police, they're not they're not armed. Um, they need special units, firearms units to come in with the firearms. So the police would arrive there hearing that what this um, the disturbance was. And, and it was firearm related. So they'd have to call up for backup then. And there's also reports that they came and they saw like yeah. lights being turned on in the house when they're waiting outside of it.
1: Yeah, and they could see a figure kind of moving between different rooms. Yeah, so
2: they thought someone's around in the house who's just, you know, committed murder... They're not going to walk in there completely unarmed to deal with it. So they had to wait for the tactical firearms unit to arrive and it did take them a fair while to get
1: there. And also they're going off of uh, kind of the the information that Jeremy has shared which is that Sheila was potentially going berserk with the rifle which also meant that if they have an active shooter present in the house they wanted to be obviously prepared before kind of entering that environment.
2: So while waiting outside the police questioned Jeremy who seemed calm. He told them about the phone call from his father and that it sounded as though someone had cut him off. He said he did not get along with his sister and when asked whether she might have gone berserk with a gun he replied i don't know really she is a nutter she's she's been having treatment jeremy told them sheila was familiar with guns and they had gone target shooting together he told the police he was at the house the night before and had loaded the rifle because he thought he had heard rabbits outside he then left it on the kitchen table fully loaded with a box of ammunition nearby again listen to a podcast uh, an american podcast about this case and they're kind of saying how uh, guns are treated very differently over here in the uk as it is in america in america you know the they tend to like cuz a lot more people have guns they'll lock them away or be very kind of careful with it. In the UK it's very much the opposite. There's not many people that have guns and when people do it tends to be more uh, it's quite it's quite normal for farming uh, communities to have guns and it would be seen as yeah it, it, the gun itself apparently wasn't it's a 22 rifle which apparently you know it sounds like a, a clapping your hand it's not a, a known to be like a really lethal weapon it's just a killing rabbits and whatnot. So it being left to one side you know Jeremy maybe he didn't know that the kids and coming over or whatever but it wasn't a big deal for him leaving it out there it's not been touted as that was a really big concern it's also been said by Colin the uh, the husband of Sheila that she had no um, experience with guns whatsoever yeah. if anything she was quite anti-guns but the apparently the twenty-two caliber, it's, it doesn't give you much recoil when you shoot, as in it's very easy to shoot. So it doesn't give, it doesn't make your hand move. So shooting a target, it's very simple to do. And also with the injuries that we described already, a lot of them are done at very very close range. So it's been said that that kind of gun would be very easy for anyone who
1: hasn't shot before to use in a lethal manner yeah and this is what the mid 80s the middle of the countryside Essex you know there's not a lot of incidents like this would ever take place so the police the local police that did arrive very likely that they hadn't had previous training to deal with a particular matter like this and obviously that's caused then a delay for the firearms team to arrive and this is exactly what they do at 5am tactical firearms arrive but decide to wait until daylight before trying to enter without knowing the house and with a potential suspect with a gun on the loose they deemed it too dangerous to enter until there is sunlight so again this is where they may have witnessed shadowy figures kind of moving from room to room different lights going off i guess it's it's hard to say unless you're in that situation but jeremy knowing that's his family and this is now what you know uh, an hour or so into waiting outside what you would do in that situation whether you would want to run in and try and talk her down if he believes it to be sheila It's it's hard to say. During this time, police determined that all the doors and windows to the house were shut, except for the window in the main bedroom on the first floor. Using a loud hailer, they spent two hours trying to communicate with Sheila, but to no avail. Some reports suggest that there was movement within the house, though this is still unconfirmed.
2: So 7.54am, the police enter the farmhouse, breaking in the back door with a sledgehammer. They noticed that the door had been locked from the inside, the key still in the lock. They entered and found the bodies, counting 25 shots had been fired, mostly at close range. Inside the house, a telephone was lying on one of the kitchen surfaces with its receiver off the hook, next to empty cartridge cases, just where Jeremy had said he had left boxes of ammunition the night before. The chairs and stools were overturned, and this broken crockery, a broken ceiling light, and what looked like blood on the floor. They found Sheila upstairs, a 22 calibre rifle was lying across her chest, pointing up at her neck. With her right hand resting lightly on it, June's Bible lay on the floor beside Sheila, partly resting on her upper right arm. It was normally kept in a bedside cupboard.
1: Yeah, so perhaps they're playing on the deeply religious kind of family themes, um, or if it's someone trying to stage it to look like that at least. Um, yeah, so it's, it's yeah a very very messy, very very um violent scene that they've stumbled on yeah and
2: like you said this kind of thing is of it's not really normal in most places but around this kind of quiet place and very kind of well to do it was very shocking for the police to kind come, come across such a scene Sheila had a long documented history of illness it seemed clear to the police that she had shot her parents children and then finally herself given jeremy's reported phone call from neville this seemed like the most likely scenario an
1: open and shut case and that is very much not what it turned out to be. So, yeah, so based on police believing Jeremy, first of all, but also investigating the scene for a very short period of time, they kind of jumped to the conclusion that, yes, right, Sheila, this is a murder-suicide, she's she's had stuff going on. Jeremy's saying um, she's a nutter, I believe was the quote. Um, this must be what happened. So they very quickly come to the conclusion that it's, it's, a, it's, it's a solved case and therefore much of the crime scene was destroyed, including the removal and burning of blood-stained carpets and beddings at Jeremy's request, as this seemed like a cut-and-dry case. So, crime scene 101. Secure the scene.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, Maintain the evidence. Yeah. Again, this kind of reeks of the the John JonBenet case in regards to just lack of knowledge of how to deal with a crime scene, lack of experience with it. Um, Apparently, lots of people entered the house. I I think it reported, like, over... 50 people went in the house during this time and also certain things just were never retrieved or destroyed i believe the bible was destroyed as well that was found on her and also if you look closely at the picture of the bible there seems to be a note sticking out from the top of it which has been it's been alleged that could possibly be sheila's suicide note Hmm. but we'll get on to that when jeremy was interviewed at the scene of the crime he appeared genuinely distressed and was comforted by an officer and given tea and whiskey I remember one of the documentaries I was watching on it. uh, He apparently fell to his knees and looked like he was trying to make himself sick. Rather than like, he thought this is how I should be acting, rather than what he felt. He said he seemed quite cold and didn't seem to be as shook up as you would imagine if this was to happen. Obviously, like we said many times before, people deal with grief in different ways. Mm. You can't say that you have to deal with it a certain way, but um, he seemed quite stoic in that time and, and then eventually, then suddenly switched to being like kind of. Very um, physical with his emotion.
1: Yeah, and I mean, perhaps that that can be consistent with the type of character he had. The way we've kind of described his childhood and his adolescence, he was very kind of a, a, a much of a loner. wasn't as animated, apart from when he went kind of new romantic on the on the tractor. Really, really bizarre set of circumstances at the moment. Um, and over the next few days, as the investigation progressed, it unveiled an inconsistency with the reported murder weapon. So, first of all, uh, the rifle itself, without a silencer, the twenty. 20- shots that were fired that night would have made far too much noise and would have alerted other victims to the danger. Yet, if a silencer was attached to the weapon, it would have made the rifle too long for Sheila to have shot herself with it, which had been assumed from the start of investigating the crime scene.
2: So, with that as well, obviously the weapon was found without the silencer on it. Yeah. So, (laughs) in regards to yeah, if Sheila, I don't think Sheila shot herself, then put it away, Mm -hmm. and then died. This podcast I listened to. They were saying that the that noise of the twenty caliber, it's, it can be very muffled, especially if you're done close up to someone. It's not. It's more like a thinking of a cap gun
1: noise. Yeah,
2: I think it's not hugely different to that. We're not gun guys.
1: Nice. Uh, twenty two rifle though. That sounds big. What, what the word rifle? You're going off there? No, the twenty two. But. 22 caliber rifle sounds powerful
2: sounds powerful to someone who knows nothing about guns i.e me and you (laughs) but from this podcast of people who own
1: guns they said it's not yeah well we'll probably go with them instead of me
3: yeah you okay
2: so yeah the silencer we will get to that because it does it does kind of twist
1: and turn this case and that does come into play later on yeah i hate Um, to go back to the itv series on this as well but that moment when they realize that well first of all the discovery of the silencer is a big deal but when they recreate the investigators realising that the silencer would have made it uh, too long for Sheila. They basically go into a forensic lab, find the shortest kind of woman, or most similar woman to the height of Sheila, put the silencer on and go, there you go, shoot yourself. And she can't do it. It's a really, really well-made scene, very poignant.
2: So basically they came to the realisation that if a silencer was used, it would have had to have been taken off the weapon and moved after the killing so that immediately is put doubt in people's minds whether Sheila had committed this crime if it was if the gun was loud enough to make everyone aware Um, but obviously the children were asleep (laughs) yeah it is it
1: is a lot of kind of Different theories that can, can run, run along there. People that still to this day believing that Jeremy is innocent believe that she's obviously uh, Sheila is responsible, but that she used the silencer uh, on the uh, on the parents and on the grandchildren, and then removed it, placed it in the cupboard, and then took took her own life without the silencer, which technically would have been would have been achievable.
2: September of August, nineteen eighty five. Members of the Bambas extended family visited the farm with Basil Cock. This states ex- really sorry.
1: I'm so sorry i'm so sorry
2: the 10th of august 1995 members of the Bamber's extended family visited the farm with basil cock the estate's executor neville Bamber's nephew david boutflower found a silencer in a cupboard at the farm still with traces of sheila's blood on it alongside a single gray hair in the cupboard where it was found they also found the sights which had been removed with a screwdriver from the murder weapon this discovery was witnessed by more than four people the family then took the silencer to the farm secretary's home to examine it they then told the police who collected the silencer on the 12th of August. So the hair found the silencer was apparently lost before it was taken to the Forensic Science Service at Huntingdon. So the thing there is, they found this silencer, and this is where again, I've massively been swayed by listening to certain podcasts, but they found the silencer, they start thumbing their way all over it. Mm. They then take it to the examiner person, farm secretary's Farm secretary's home to examine it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Why are they examining
1: it? Yeah, what qualifications has this secretary got?
2: Yeah, so it's like, but then why they, they wait two days before they actually take it? Tell the police. So why are they doing that?
1: Yeah, that's a, a, a long period of time yeah so the, the burns at uh, the top of Neville's spine which were quite unusual perfectly circular were consistent with that of a, a silencer having been shot and then kind of held and burnt onto him at, at kind of if, to, if you imagine poking someone in the back to move them with, with a gun that's just been shot So the 16th of August 1985, Jeremy attends Neville, June and Sheila's funeral in full view of the media. So there are some very famous photos here of him in absolute agony by the look of it, really grieving. Um, Sheila's sons had a private funeral. Jeremy is seen being comforted by his girlfriend Julie Mugford. He walked solemnly behind the coffins, visibly devastated, with his hand covering his face for the majority of the proceedings.
2: Yeah, so yeah, so with the pictures, and the, it does look like Jeremy is very sad here. I do think there's a lot of this case which feels very Menendez brothers, yes, yeah, 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 um, with the kind of putting on a show, with the ideas of how Jeremy's. What we go into it, how he behaves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely some like links between that here. Somebody's language experts have pointed to the public display of sadness at this point by Jeremy to show signs of insincerity, covering his face and noticing the over dramatic emotions not quite reaching all of the muscles in his face. It's like when people smile, a fake smile. They don't smile with their eyes. They look dead behind the eyes. Yeah, like Dan's doing it right now. When when a, Ben says a joke, I guess.
1: <laughs> I don't know about
2: that The producer Danny says it I'm like
0: <laughs> What? You mean it?
2: Um, but yeah it Again With the body language thing I, Obviously that's their That's their profession I'm not slagging it off But People grieve in different ways Though that nephew The one um, I mentioned earlier And the one that found him, The silencer He said Really He's very odd With how he mm, describes things yeah. He was saying about How you know he was put, He was seemed very sad And then he walked around the corner Away from the cameras And suddenly had a Great big smile on his face He's gonna went from yeah. here to here and didn't need to go in that much
1: detail. No, that's that's too much detail. Yeah. yeah. It's kinda of, again similar to the alleged Menendez brothers joke in the in the car. The the shoes. Yeah. Yeah. Very. After his family's funeral, Jeremy went out for a meal with friends. Some have suggested to celebrate. Detective Inspector Miller was watching Jeremy Bamber throughout the funeral and he said that he knew immediately that something was wrong and he thought that Jeremy was acting. He then got a call from Jeremy's former housemaster, William Thomas, who told Miller, It seemed to me that Bamber was acting. My wife, who was watching the television with me at the time, also made comments about it. A lot of people believing that Bamba was kind of playing up to the cameras there. Again, you get very much the Menendez Brothers vibes here. In the meantime, Bamba would go on to enjoy a life of luxury, spending his parents' money and even going on holiday to Amsterdam. And although his behaviour was now being closely watched, Bamba appeared unaffected and detached from the events at the farm.
2: Well, yet again, to make Menendez Brothers doing the same thing big spending spree after their parents passed away that immediately made people ask questions and yeah, again it's like it seems to be very an odd way to grieve losing all your family so the 7th of september 1985 julie mugford changed her police statement so julie mugford was um, bambo's girlfriend she had previously stated that she had received a telephone call from him at three thirty a.m on the 7th of august during which he sounded worried and said there's something wrong at home she said that she had been tired and not, had not asked what it was you would ask what it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, she now told police how Jeremy had planned and executed the murders, revealing that he had previously spoken about his desire to get rid of them all and that on the 6th of August, he had mentioned the family inheritance that he would inherit and said it was tonight or never. He then allegedly had previously spoken about hiring a hitman for £2,000. She also told the police that at approximately 9.50pm on Tuesday, August 6th, the day Jeremy went for dinner with, at his parents with Sheila and the boys, Jeremy had called her to say that he'd been thinking about committing the murders all day. She stated that his conversations about killing his family became frequent between October and December 1984 and into late 1985. He had spoken to her about shooting his entire family and escaping through a kitchen window. She also told police Bamba had said that he had got his friend, a man named Matthew McDonald, to
1: kill the family. So the important thing to note here is that when she decided to change her police statement, Jeremy had just broken up with her. Yes. So, until that point, she had gone either gone along with him, or she'd, you know, stuck by him and genuinely believed he was innocent. Yeah,
2: so this is a huge part of the case, because, yeah, this is essentially someone saying that, you know, literally, he's told me he's, he's going to do it, and he's, he's done it. As Ben mentioned, he's just broken up with her. Apparently, she took the breakup very badly. There's reports, apparently, of her trying to smother him afterwards, which yeah. immediately, you know, there's a red flag there. Apparently, the police had some charges on her as well, for some from drug selling and things like that. Some people theorise that perhaps she's given this information in order to help those charges go away seems very calm about learning all this from Bamba and then suddenly it's like okay now I'm going to tell the police everything you could argue the fact that she's done it is because she was scared about Bamba beforehand and now she wants you know to kind of set, set the story straight but it does seem very out of the blue Yeah, and even, like, if someone's saying to you they think about killing their family, you would have thought you'd alert the police.
1: Yeah, or the family.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: It's widely believed that her position towards Jeremy changed when an old girlfriend of his phoned him and he asked her out in Mugford's presence. As a result of this, the couple had an argument. She threw something at him, slapped him, and he twisted her arm up her back. So, yeah, so very heated moment there. Um, And perhaps that's the reason why Mugford is suddenly trying to... um, Kind of change her story, and it's also believed that she potentially, as a result of missing out on some of the inheritance now by being Jeremy's partner, she was going to miss out on a decent amount of money. So she then started also to talk to the tabloids. Um, I believe there was a twenty-five thousand pound deal that she had had signed to sell her story. So yeah, not a great thing to do before anything has even gone to trial. But also with Jeremy, if he's such an evil mastermind, why is he telling her all of this and
2: then dumping her? That's the big thing there for me. It's like if if you're confiding someone all this information you wouldn't be doing that to someone who you're then planning you're going to dump keep, thinking yeah. that they're going to keep it secret if there's
1: no gain for them in the situation whatsoever. 8th of September 1985. As a result of Mugford's statement, Jeremy was arrested, as was the friend Mugford mentioned, though the friend had a solid alibi and was released. Jeremy told police Mugford was lying because he had broken up with her. Jeremy was bailed from the police station on the 13th of September and then went on holiday to the south of France. Before leaving England, he returned to the farmhouse, gaining entry by the downstairs bathroom window. He said that he did this because he had left his keys in London and needed some papers for the trip to France. He chose not to borrow keys from the housekeeper who lived nearby. So that is a little bit yeah. suspicious. So there is, yeah, there's a, a, a hinged window in the downstairs bathroom that, that apparently would would not completely lock from the inside, so you could get in quite easily that way. Um, but also deciding not to kind of go to the housekeeper who had keys to the property, considering he also wants to distance himself from the property. Maybe he's just wanting to go in under the radar, I guess, and not cause a fuss, but yeah, it's a little bit strange.
2: Yeah, it's a bit strange, but... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, some people just have a odd way of thinking about it in terms of, like, sometimes people think, oh, it's easier if I just do this. But yeah, it could, be, it could be as innocent as that, but it does look very, yeah, very suspect. On the 29th of September 1985, Jeremy returns
1: from his trip to the south of France and is immediately rearrested and charged with all five murders. On the 14th of October 1986, Jeremy Bamber's trial begins at the Chelmsford Crown Court. Bamber's ex-girlfriend, Julie Mugford, is the star witness. Justice Drake is appointed as judge. So during the trial there were two explanations presented for the killings. The first was the prosecution case that Jeremy had entered the White House farm that night and shot the five members of his family with a legally held rifle. Sheila's blood was inside the silencer of the murder weapon, proving that she could not have shot herself, then put it in a cupboard downstairs. The second explanation put forward by the defence was that Sheila, who had a known history of mental health issues, had shot the four members of her family with the rifle and then committed suicide just as the police had originally fought some officers on the scene however thought that some of the findings were inconsistent with this explanation and that members of the Bamba's extended family did not believe that it was consistent with their knowledge of Sheila despite mounting evidence Bamba remained confident that he would leave court a free man as I said there's so much conflicting information here
2: and being on the jury for that would be yeah it, it was very hard for them uh, they were unable to reach majority which we'll get into but it seems to be two theories there there were certain bits of evidence which weren't they weren't able to use mm-hmm. in this uh, in in the courtroom which is apparently very key bits of evidence yeah,
1: well they would burnt most of it
2: exactly yeah so that immediately makes it not going to be a completely fair and free trial On the 28th of october 1986 jeremy bamber was convicted of five counts of murder by a majority of 10 to 2 following a 19 day trial so doing a majority is not a normal thing over here so so the judge wanted to close the case he went with majority rather than you know the has to be unanimous he was sentenced to life imprisonment with recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years After the sentencing, Mr. Justice Drake said, I find it difficult to foresee whether it will ever be safe to release someone who can shoot two little boys as they lie asleep in their beds. He also noted that the problems had taken place during initial inquiries and throughout the main police investigations. The first major error in this case was the police allowing the house to be cleared shortly after the killings. Jeremy's fingerprints were eventually discovered in the Bible and the gun left on Sheila's body, but were missed during the initial inquiries so the fingerprints on the gun he had taken it out or got it prepared ready to shoot rabbits as he said so that explains his fingerprints there on the bible we'll never know yeah I mean there could be a number of reasons why he's touched that bible yeah that does seem a bit suspect but as well it's like as the judge mentioned there's a lot of police errors in this case.
1: Definitely and apparently the judge also spoke to the jury and said basically either Mugford or Bamba are lying it's your job to decide who is um, and then that is what you base your ruling on. So November of 1986 Jeremy's first appeal was started just one month after he was found guilty as Bamba believed that the judge had misdirected the jury this appeal was heard but refused. During a later hearing with free appeal court judge in 1989, Bamba's lawyer Jeffrey Rivlin argued that the judge's summing up had been biased against Bamba. He claimed that the language the judge had used in the trial had been too forceful and that he undermined Bamba's defence by creating his own theory. As much as Rivlin claimed that the trial had not been fair, the judges refused Bamba's appeal as they believed there was nothing unsatisfactory in the verdicts. And interestingly, this um, lawyer that Bamba hires, Jeffrey Rivlin, would later
2: go on to represent Saddam Hussein. But he also had a theory and one of the things I watched that to do with Neville passing away and apparently 10 or so other people who were from the army background and linked to him had previously died in mysterious circumstances in a certain period of time as well. Mm-hmm. So he had a much bigger conspiracy theory in terms of what actually could have happened that night in that place but he didn't he didn't really go divulge much more than that so it's just another theory put out there by him 24th of september 1993 jeremy petitioned the home secretary seeking a reference to the court of appeal during consideration of the petition the home office declined to disclose to the appellant expert evidence that he had obtained Essex police worked during the initial investigation that had come under fire throughout Jeremy's trial and this led to an internal inquiry. Bamber filed a complaint as he claimed that the results from the inquiry proved that the police had withheld evidence during his trial. His complaint was investigated and it uncovered further documents that had not been seen before. On the 25th of July, 1994, the petition was refused despite the new evidence. See, that's very, very odd. Why wouldn't you want to look into it? I know the police have come under a lot of fire and they don't. maybe they don't want to... Go to, go on to prove. Oh, we've arrested a guilty man for this long, yeah, yeah. but it's it's how the courts aren't going. but well, yeah, we obviously we need to look into that. there's new yeah. evidence has come to come come to light, we need to look into it I'm
1: uh, yeah, I'm thinking more. It's along the lines of, <laughs> although again, this is just an opinion that they've made a mistake and they don't want to kind of look back on that.
2: Yeah, that's the
1: vibe I kind of get. So February of 1996, the Essex Police destroyed many of the original trial exhibits. It might have been necessary for the court to examine the circumstances in which this had happened at any subsequent appeals. So again, this again looks like some sort of cover-up. They're going back to remove any possibility to re-examine evidence. The police officer responsible contended that it was done without his appreciating that there was any ongoing legal process that might require the further use of the exhibits. However, during legal arguments, it was agreed that the court could protect Jeremy's position by making assumptions in his favour and that therefore it was unnecessary to resolve precisely how this came about
2: so basically they destroy this evidence thinking oh we'll never need it we'll make some room in the evidence room and then they're going well no don't why did you do that going oh well like your parents trying to get rid of your toys you're never going to use it i might (laughs) but yeah they just destroying evidence or that's the kind of thing in this case which really does make you lean on the idea of going it's not quite as cut and dry yeah That's what they're trying to say. They're they're trying to hide their mistakes, trying to hide their stuff, and just seem to be because it's done by the police, they're like, oh, well, no, it's fine. April 1997, Jeremy's case was treated as still alive and was effectively transferred
1: to the commission to complete the review. So July of 2001, a team of police officers were given four months to complete fresh inquiries into the case. It was referred back to the Court of Appeal by Criminal Cases Review Commission, which investigates possible miscarriages of justice because of the discovery of DNA in the silencer. This was found as a result of a test not available in 1986 and constituted fresh evidence. So it's kind of I guess the UK's version of the Innocence Project type of thing. So this appeal ended up working against Jeremy and in a 522 paragraph judgment the judges concluded that there was no conduct on the part of the investigators that threatened the integrity of the trial. If anything, it made them agree with the jury's decision even more.
2: And in 2008, Jeremy appealed his whole life sentence but lost and the verdict was upheld in 2009. Bamba and three other British whole life prisoners appealed to the European Court of Human Rights but the appeal was rejected in 2012. So we can appreciate, obviously, there's a lot to digest there, lots of different theories going on. We've mentioned a lot of the kind of things that made Jeremy appear innocent or guilty. as, as Same with Sheila. We're going to go a bit more in depth now about those, those things there which can really sway the jury essentially
1: yeah have you got uh, a suspect in mind at this point Dan uh, I think it reeks of Jeremy but um... oh. well let's see if Tom can change your mind mm-hmm. looking forward to this why me change your mind well you might not have to what let's... are you going to be doing for the next 20 minutes I'm just going to be
2: fighting away <laughs> play the clip just let me you just outside for about 20 minutes
1: <laughs> <laughs> fuck off I've oh, it that would probably work quite well, but don't. So, so
2: Dan, you're currently saying it reached Jeremy. Ben, what's your theory currently?
1: I don't think there's an, there was enough to convict him. I do think he's either he's either very, very smart or he's very, very unlucky. But I don't think it was Sheila at the same time. And I don't think it was June or Neville or, or either the boys.
0: I must so, add, because I, I, I watched the footage of the funeral as well, and it does seem a little bit fishy. You know, I'm not, I'm, bit, not an, I'm not an actor. But a bit OTT. A bit, yeah, a bit kind of insincere.
2: Yeah, so me looking into it, I at first was thinking that Jeremy was innocent. But then some of the things with the silencer and whatnot we're going to get into, it does just, it it does appear very bizarre.
1: Yeah, I'm still leaning more towards Guilty, but I think he had a very unfair trial. Neville's injuries are probably the main thing making
2: me think that it was Jeremy.
1: Although it's believed he was shot upstairs and then made to go downstairs Mm. and then shot downstairs. Although she was going... For, she'd never been violent with anyone before. She'd smashed but a couple the of the burn windows.
2: marks on the, the back, could that be not marching them downstairs? Could be. Could with, be. With a gun to the back. Anyway, we're going to go through... Reasons why Sheila. These are some theories to back her innocence. So the first of the gunshot wounds hit her in the throat, and it would be possible for a person with such an injury to stand up and walk around, as initially suggested. However, the lack of blood in Sheila's nightdress suggested she had not gotten up and walked around after she had been shot the first time.
1: As well as this, she obviously she had very naturally long nails, and they were perfectly intact. So yeah, any kind of uh, reloading of the gun or recoil from the gun would have absolutely cracked uh, the nails, but they were in pristine condition. Um, at the time, of her, uh, the time of her body being discovered and also the soles of her feet completely clean, completely spotless. So um, hard to believe she would have been walking around different rooms of the house.
2: DS Stanley Bryan-Jones, who worked in the case, claims the scene was immediately treated as four murders and a suicide because the team had a note saying, I've killed myself, but the policeman who seized it later failed to include any reference to it in his statement. And later, when it reemerged, it was filed away as illegible. There's also been claims that we mentioned before about Neville being six foot four and healthy, how would Sheila with such small stature be able to claim claim his life and uh, you know overpower him? Obviously she's got she's got a weapon, but it's you know, with his training and whatnot, you think he'd be able to, yeah. to handle that situation? He had m- um,
1: multiple broken bones and fractures as well, which again she had a weapon, yes, but I mean it's extensive uh, injuries to to Neville.
2: As we mentioned before, her ex-husband said she wasn't familiar with a gun, but you know we've already gone over how that gun was actually quite easy to use comparatively to other guns.
1: I guess another uh, part that uh, is leading to uh, Jeremy's guilt and, and Sheila's innocence more so is that there were numerous people that came forward to suggest that prior to the night of the murders... Jeremy had been overheard saying he could kill anybody. I could even kill my parents. However, Jeremy outright denies having ever said that. Jeremy had also once said of Sheila, "I am not going to share my money with my sister." Again, Jeremy outright denies having ever said this. So, the, we haven't even mentioned the inheritance has been believed to be about five,
2: uh, half a million five hundred thousand pounds. So, it's, you know, it's a considerable amount, amount of money there. Um, and yeah, it's believed he didn't want to share the inheritance, but also I've heard a conflicting theory. That the family members, you know, the the nephews, the one that we mentioned earlier. The cousins. They would have lost all the inheritance. They would have went to Jeremy and they would have hated that idea. So maybe them finding the silencer and all that stuff, they were happy to kind of taint him with all that as well. Uh, But obviously that's quite a far-fetched theory, but some people believe that one as well.
1: Well, that's the one that kind of Jeremy to this day believes his family have set him up and his cousins now stand to gain more from the inheritance than he was able to. He's consistently made uh, various appeals to get kind of access to his inheritance and, and, and parts of the estate that he felt he was he was due to get. And yeah, I mean, the uh, the whole intruder theory is kind of one that's been ruled out. But, you know, there were windows that still opened from the inside that only people having been in there before would have been aware of, so perhaps it's you can't completely rule out. The- I guess
2: with the with the intruder one, you, unless the police and Jeremy did actually, but then why is Jeremy saying that? Why is the father saying that Sheila's on?
1: Yeah, Neville's made the call because it's,
2: e- it's, it's either Neville's made that call and that is happening, or Jeremy's made that call up. Yeah, so that kind of makes you not think they would be an intruder unless unless it's someone who. Jeremy is hired to go in and do it. One of the big things to support Jeremy's innocence is um, from new photo evidence was that Sheila's blood was wet. Some of the evidence that was not made available for the defence before the year 2005 were photographs of Sheila taken by a police photographer at around 9am on the 7th of August. They showed that Sheila's blood was still wet and if she was killed before 3.30am as the prosecution said her blood would have congealed by 9am. The other victim's blood had congealed and dried by this point. So, yeah. So that is big. a a big one because it, it it's like unless Jeremy had killed everyone in the house, yeah. But there's no marks in her of a struggle. No. Left left her until the very end. Schutter went out, called the police from his house. Yeah, it, 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 it just it, it yeah, that one's a real kind of very far fetched, but it could still happen. A head scratcher. Yeah. It's so he rang at three twenty six a.m. saying all this had happened. And yeah, if it if she was killed before that time around three thirty, it would be congealed by nine a.m. So that that one for me is is a real yeah, it's big because yeah, all the other bodies were found in a very different state to her.
1: It's brutal as well. June, well, June and Neville in particular, very very brutal murders. So if it was Jeremy, he's he's obviously maybe it's a mercy killing for the the uh, his nephews, but sheila is quite a, relatively straightforward comparatively to june and neville mm. like there's a lot of aggression with both of their deaths and a lot of yeah
2: external true and one of the statements from one of the first officers to enter the house at 7 34 a.m who was pc peter woodcock dated the twentieth september 1985 said of sheila she had what appeared to be bullet holes under her chin and blood leaking from both sides of her mouth down her cheeks so again the wet blood um, and the ph- photographs would go on to support that as well. The only photographs of Sheila seen by the defence during the trial did not include her feet. They found photographs of her body that did include the feet and showed she had blood on them. If she had walked through a house where four murders had taken place, she would be expected to have blood on her feet, but it was a pr- part of the prosecution's case that her feet were clean. It's like you said, mm-hmm. conflicting to what you said. Again, there's like conjecture in this. The fact that her feet were covered in blood would then, yeah, it would make sense her walking around the house. But then again, you could argue she maybe should run away from Jeremy. Like it's not clear from that. Another thing said about the photos, there was no sign of rigor mortis and the skin was not discolored. Which again leads in with the idea of how long the body's been lying there. All those things of yeah, it, it very much muddies the
1: waters there. I mean, to go into the motive, there was a lot of money attached to the will, as well as all the land and property and business that the Bambers owned. So their their business uh, N and J Bamber Limited was worth four hundred thousand pounds at the time, which is over a million pounds now. And in their wills, June had left uh, two hundred and thirty thousand, which is about six hundred eight thousand, and Neville. 380,000, which is again just over a million, so multi-million pounds worth of money here. During the murder trial, the court had heard that the Bambas had basically left their estate to Jeremy and Sheila... To be divided equally in addition, uh, Nevilles had had that kind of amendment to say that it would only go to Gen- Jeremy if he was still working at the farm yep. however, it was alleged uh, and they heard from the mother of, they heard this from the mother of jeremy 's ex girlfriend that June had said she wanted to or had been saying that she wanted to change her will to bypass both children and go straight to the grandchildren uh, so that could possibly again be. Uh, a motive for the twins to have been uh, murdered that night. Uh, The parents' estate included land and buildings occupied by Jeremy's cousins, who were made aware after the murders that Jeremy intended to sell that land. So again, a lot of the fingers from the family are naturally pointing towards uh, Jeremy. During the trial as well, one cousin actually moved into the White House farm while several of the other ones tried to acquire full ownership of the caravan site that the the family owned as well as other buildings on the farm. So yes. there's just a lot going on in the family. So there's a
2: lot of vultures circling there, yeah. it seems. Another thing to support the um, idea that Jeremy is is in fact not the killer was some missing phone logs were found. And these are quite, yeah, if the, if, you know, if this is true, then it really does to kind of strengthen the case. Lost phone logs that were later uncovered backed Bamber's story. One of the logs previously unseen suggests Bamber's father, Neville, did call police on the night of the massacre at White House at the White House farm in Essex. A note written on August 7th, 1985, is titled Daughter Gone Berserk and timed at 3.26 AM. Ten minutes before a second note records Jeremy Bamber's own distress call. It states, Mr. Bamber, White House Farm, daughter Sheila Bamba, age twenty-six, has got hold of one of my guns. So both, if if he's rang the police saying exactly what's happening, then rang
1: Jeremy, it, that surely is enough to be like, well, that's exactly what happened. Definitely. I mean, there's, there's, there was very um, contrived evidence at the trial and, and limited evidence as well because allegedly it's jeremy that said oh well it's a murder suicide burn it straight away which that's Mm. a strange reaction that is yeah if you're believing straight away that it's your your sister that's responsible rather than it could be the wider family or an intruder there was
2: another really weird thing i I heard uh, which was colin he was talking about the murders and he said like he looked at jeremy immediately afterwards afterwards as a brother kind of looking after him and kind of making sure he was okay obviously both grieving and he saw jeremy kind of acting very strangely at uh, one point he ran up upstairs, and he had spiked his hair in the same way that one of the twin boys had done in the bath there's a famous picture well there's a picture from the case which has one of the boys in the bath doing like kind of liberty spikes, like spiked his hair in three points like Krusty the clown kind of style i guess and jeremy apparently was run upstairs giggling with that hair style and then he saw someone spot him and he kind of then quickly brushed his hair down and which is very odd behavior. I mean, it's on the documentary I was, I was watching, they said like how many traits he has that l- will be psychopathic traits. Yeah, um, Enjoying, you know, seeing people like struggle and not having much emotion, not being able to have much empathy. And another thing was apparently he, after spending a lot of the money, he wanted to generate more money. So he contacted someone from the sun and he basically was trying to sell them pictures of his sister, of her using, and they said, a cucumber as a sex toy and a vibrator. The editor, luckily of The Sun, weirdly, you'd have thought that they were just the pits. But um, they... they were don't print anything like that but print the fact that he's trying to sell this yeah.
1: make a bigger story out. make of a bigger
2: story out of that the fact that he was acting that way about his dead sister so that immediately again that's a very very odd and questionable behavior for someone who's well in anyone's behavior doing that is very very questionable so
1: yeah i mean at the time as well i know we're kind of jumping between lots of different suspects here but at the time uh, june had previously been sectioned and diagnosed as psychotic shortly before the murders so some people suspected June having you know having suffered some form of breakdown and then taking it out on the family but obviously the injuries to June kind of immediately ruled that out obviously uh, Sheila had had her own demons and and, and her own issues uh, that she had battled for many many years so that did kind of Way slightly in jeremy's favor neville tom mentioned his uh, raf friends he also had uh, spent some time working for the secret service and apparently four of them were murdered in very suspicious circumstances yeah, i think They're i think i
2: massively overly egged out things a 10 earlier but yeah that in itself is a, yeah. is a huge one how they've all died in in mysterious circumstances there's a, yeah there's other reports of um there being two silences were found at the farm but the jury were only showed, told about one a lot of the, the marks on the body apparently when it was trialed out um on, on a pig skin, I believe, shooting from a distance without a silencer, shooting close with a silencer, it was determined that from that particular rifle, like against the skin when shot, that's the closest they could get to it without so it didn't have a silencer, they believed, but from those tests they said the mark on the body is more reminiscent to someone shooting against the skin without a silencer. Which then that if that completely throws out the silencer. Like the blow poke in the staircase great documentary highly recommend it if you throw that out yep. then that immediately completely wipes out a lot of the theories and you can say well she could have shot herself yeah And the science that like because it's been argued as well the dna found in in, in the science so doesn't actually quite match up it's like yeah, a very very small percentage of or, i don't know where i sit on it like, yes. at, at all jeremy's behavior in some instances is just appalling but then with sheila saying before that she believed that the children were the devil, the yeah. suicide note, yeah, the, the suicide note apparently was, yeah, saying what she was doing about killing herself and exactly what happened to the family. So if that you note know, did mm. exist and the police mysteriously lost it or didn't, makes sense in the narrative they wanted to lead then
1: so then to go off if the gun was used without the silencer then and it was sheila then i can't buy into that as much because her nails were absolutely i know, I keep going back to the nails but her nails were absolutely pristine no no because um, it was a- alleged as well that she would have then after committing all of this had a ritualistic bath and then changed her outfit is why they're saying she was in such a pristine push her blood and her feet
2: well, well there, according yeah. to that but then that's the thing lots of this is one team are saying this, one team is saying the exact opposite. I mean, Sheila, obviously, she's not doing this for any... If she did this, she's not doing this for any gain other than maybe putting herself out of this misery. But with, with Jeremy, obviously, there's a financial gain. Yeah. It's very tricky to kind of pinpoint exactly why would this happen. The Secret Service thing about, about, about Neville getting killed, I don't believe... They would kill the whole family in that mm-hmm. instance. They would just and kill children. Him. As yeah, well. they just kill yeah. him. If it's the other reports of the people, I'm I'm sure it wasn't all the family was killed as well because then that would be be made into a much much bigger thing. Very baffling. And again, the frustrating thing with this, I mean, apart from the police burning evidence at the beginning of the case and then burning it later down the line, going, "Oh, I thought you were done with it." It's It's like the John thing. It's like evidence that could have been kept pristine, which would have been used, able to use today with with better techniques that could have uncovered this, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's, it's very tricky to to unpack. And it's like when you watch documentaries with any of the family involved and Colin, the uh, uh, Sheila's ex-husband, they're all uh, 100% adamant, definitely, Jeremy.
1: And we're hearing, obviously, the Louis Farouk series that's due to come out as we're filming this is very much a, a different take and it's very much pointing the finger at either Sheila, an external family member or the the intruder theory yeah. but it's who it's who stands to gain the most and I think that's why it's very easy to with Sheila no longer being here to point the finger at Jeremy but at the same time he behaved very strangely during the sentencing the trial judge described Jeremy Bamba as warped callous and evil almost beyond belief and there was not a lot of public sympathy bef- uh, for him at the time as well a lot of the uh, the national media were reporting it was obviously he crocodile tears at the funeral and that he stood to do it all for a financial gain yeah yeah um, so it, it's yeah I mean
0: Dan has that changed any of your thoughts here not really I was gonna say one thing we don't have to put this in but um right at the start you said when the police arrived with Jeremy mm. at yeah. the scene there was figures dodging around in the house is that
2: that's it's been it's been said by some people and said not said by other people okay. it's again one of those things of this which is incredibly irritating there's a complete opposite opinion on each thing it was reported apparently first off that they had seen things because if you went to the house and it's completely dark, silent, and you waited out there for an hour, you probably would look to go in if you thought people were dying in there.
1: That's another big thing for me, although there were like fractured relationships, it was alleged in the months building up to the the murders as well that June and Jeremy weren't talking to each other Mm -hmm. whatsoever, but the thing that, and yes, there was a lot of tensions within the house, but the thing that really stands out to me is Jeremy waited outside that house knowing that potentially what was going on and that it was family and his nephews And uh, sister and parents could have all been, you know, potentially saved. And he's not tried, as far as we're aware, not tried to enter the house or just, you know, tell him police, go, go, go. There's no kind of sense of emergency from him or urgency. So it's a horrible situation to try and put yourself in. But if that was my family, the first thing I would want to do is try and get in the building. But um, maybe he did and it just wasn't reported. But
2: that's the thing. As I said, like so many conflicting things have been reported. You never
1: really know the actual uh, ins and outs of it. It's called a local police station instead of 999, thinking that 999 wouldn't have been able to get there as quick when they probably would have got there quicker.
2: We're going to move on to now some trivia about the case and some other facts and details and then move on to lookalikes.
1: So first things first, the White House farm. So the White House farm itself, the farmhouse, uh, now belongs to, or allegedly the, the land upon which, belongs to East Coast Classics, which is a classic car and camper van rental company that have a collection of iconic and classic vehicles to rent for events such as weddings or even family holidays.
2: Or staycations recently, they'll probably make a murder. Ooh. Make a murder? Doesn't make sense. Killing.
1: <laughs> Whilst the address of White House Farm is inhabited by East Coast classics, there have also been reports that Jeremy Bamber's cousin Anne Eaton, who now um, who played a massive part throughout the case as well, giving evidence against Jeremy, now lives at the farm, having moved in following the 1985 murders. Um, so Jeremy has expressed a lot of disgust towards Anne and her decision to live at the farm, calling her an odd and morbid human to want to live at a crime scene. Anne moved into the farm with her family shortly after Jeremy's conviction. She has stayed out of the public eye and declined to give interviews. In
2: 2004, Bamber was attacked by a fellow prisoner with a knife while talking on the phone and needed 20 stitches. Again, I think it's one of those high-caliber, well, high, uh, well-known inmates. People want to make a name for themselves there. He now spends his life in HM Prison Wakefield in Yorkshire. And in his first year in jail, he's alleged to have received over 50 love letters. So Jeremy actually commented about the TV series, the one you really like on ITV, Mm -hmm. calling it a disgrace. Speaking to the newspaper from prison, he said, The ITV drama is a disgrace. It is being broadcast in the middle of a review and it is likely to interfere with the CPS being able to pursue the option of a retrial. is promoted as a drama... As Carol Ann Lee's book, that is based upon, is for the most part simply made up.
1: I, I yes, it is, it, there are even states at the start. You know, it's been dra- dramatized for effect. But the research that went into that show was extensive, and it's, it's very well cast. It just gives you that kind
2: of. <laughs> that doesn't read anything. Well,
1: well, uh, they, it, it is. There's some great actors in there. I'm, Mark...
2: not, I'm not the, just debating that, okay. but if you're. If you're trying to get out of prison, and someone puts a drama out, let's say let's say you're Bamboo and you're innocent, yeah. a drama goes out which essentially says you're the guilty party.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I wouldn't really mind about who's cast. You've you got a very valid point. But there. also, it's like it's it's people watching it and they go, "Well, that's exactly what happened." Yeah,
1: yeah. Because we can... even
2: discussed that with this case and with a case we're doing soon, dramatized versions of it. Mm-hmm. not good for doing research
1: not good for doing research but it gave you that kind of fly on the wall perspective into dramatised events but yeah which yeah. isn't helpful which I uh, enjoyed a, it was a good watch yeah if
0: that's what you... we're debating
1: it yeah well I'm, I've, I've not entered any kind of debate just yet
0: <laughs> fun fact I know the guy who plays Jeremy oh. Freddie Fox wow lovely stuff but tell him
2: don't use it for research yeah I thank agree. you yeah The next detective Mark William Thomas, who helped uncover Jimmy Savile's sex crimes, believes Jeremy Bamber is innocent and believes Sheila murdered the family before she took her own life. And he writes to him in prison and is committed to helping him. So, you know, another detective there thinking that he is innocent. There's a Jeremy Bamber justice group on Facebook, which has 1.2 thousand members and a discussion Facebook group with just under 1 thousand members. So if anyone wants to... Have a discussion and chat about it. There's some groups on Facebook for you to join.
1: Yeah, lots of quotes in the build-up to the, that fateful night. Um, one in particular is alleged that Neville apparently told his secretary, Barbara, whilst Sheila and June were obviously both going through various uh, battles of their own relating to uh, one of Sheila's miscarriages, that uh, Neville felt he was very sure he was going to be shot accidentally by Jeremy on one of the family hunts. It's a very peculiar thing to say. Yeah. Uh, He had no one he could talk to, obviously with Sheila and June, you know, Mm. facing their own um, issues. Maybe the police. And obviously the ex-girlfriend as well, Mugford. There's motive there for her, but based on her being dumped, um, she said that uh, Jeremy had told his uncle, I could kill anybody, I could even kill my parents easily.
2: How does the conversation get there? (laughs) Like, I could kill anyone, including my parents, that's... What, two old people?
1: Again, another one from uh, Neville's secretary, Barbara. She told reporters that Jeremy used to provoke his parents relentlessly and that any time he visited the farm, there were arguments. She told reporters that Jeremy used to ride circles around his mother on a bicycle wearing makeup to upset his father and once hid a bag of live rats in Wilson's car. He's very good at catching rats. Very good. Well, 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 he grew up on a farm. I don't think that's a skill that you just get, though, is it? Probably closer... Any to- farmers
2: watching, let us know if you just have a natural uh, ability to catch rats. Uh, ben believes you do. I'm open to be taught differently. And on that note, Ben, <laughs> we're going to move over to at lookalikeys. Yeah. This was
1: really friggin' well hard, I found. Uh, so anyone joining us via audio platforms, every episode that we do has a fantastic opening intro made by it's our wonderful. very own producer, Dan. Um, and that those intros are typically accompanied by uh, animations by the brilliant Phil Witten at Phil Wits, um, and he has said that he believes Jeremy Bamber looks like Gary Newman. Here in Mecca, shout out to Phil there. And if you want to look at our animations, why not follow us on Instagram? Um, at Good Murderer Pod. Um, for me, I struggled. Um, I've got one for Neville, who was cast brilliantly uh, in the ITV series. I'll say it series? again. I uh, but I think Neville looks like a cross between the BFG and the farmer from Babe. For me, I think a young Bamba looks like a young Ricky Gervais. And a young Bamba looks very much like my dad.
2: Yeah, we we discovered that last night, didn't we?
1: Yeah, we, we both talking. had the same look alike. I was
2: like, I'm not going to say this in the, in the case because I don't want to be taken the wrong way, but I was like, looks a little bit like your dad. Yeah. When he was younger, you're like, oh my goodness, I had that too. And here we are. Uh, I really struggled with Bamber. I, I, yeah, le- electro electro kind of 80s band. Yeah, Newman, like, like um, Phil said. Bowie. A little bit Bowie at times. But then another one is one of those faces where a, diff- a, a different angle. Nah, one of those faces from different angles, he looks like a completely different human. My friend Tom Preston, I put up, he looks a lot like him. Though he said, why do people always compare me to people that are old uh, so that is a lookalike i'm sure you guys will have a better lookalike than us like you always tend to do so please let us know in the comments below
1: an old jeremy bamber i've just realized looks like football manager nigel atkins quite a lot actually
2: and that is the white house farm murders very big case lots of questions asked dan who's guilty jezza ben who's guilty jezza Tom, who's guilty? They'll be judged. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Uh, I'm going just to. I'm going to think Sh- Sheila. Just to be different. Hopefully, Louis Thoreau can prove that right, so I don't look like yeah. an idiot. But anyway, it's been yeah, it's been a very interesting case to, to to uncover. And please, yeah, go watch the ITV like, drama that Ben. yeah, Ben said and, and Dan's mates in.
1: Yeah, and we're going to watch the Louis Faroux one, so anyone here, as a result of that, we hadn't seen it before we did this, so... Uh, it's purely a quinky dink. Yeah, absolutely. But um, as always, uh, socials, uh, at Could Murder a Pod on Instagram and Twitter, we post every day there, talk about cases that, were, that are coming up, both on Patreon and the main channel.
2: And we've got Facebook as well, so you know, we'll pop up on there as well. We also, if you listen to us on audio, Spotify or iTunes, please leave us a review on there or follow us on there. It does really help. Also, we've noticed a little increase on the um, people setting the notification bell on YouTube. But if you're not part of the gang, join the gang so we can alert you when we're posting. Um, And don't forget to give us a like and leave us a little comment there. We always appreciate it.
1: We also have the store, icmap.store. And we also have the Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash couldmurderapod. And get discount on the store just for becoming a Patreon which we forget to mention, so I'm mentioning it. Exactly. Smart.
2: Mm. Smart. Anyway, thank you so much for watching us, guys. And until next (laughs) time...
0: Jesus.
1: That is loud.
0: That is the first way to end it.
1: Oh, Jesus Christ. We say this all the time. I'll just do it like this, Dan. Jesus. That's quite good, actually, like that.
2: And like we always say...
1: We say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. Well, uh, unless it's making your way onto a farmhouse. Making your way downtown, walking fast, people passing homebound. <laughs>
0: Take
1: care, guys. And i miss you. Creepy.
0: You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast. Written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Additional voiceover by Finney Cassidy and Jonathan Kidd. Additional research and timelines written by Danielle St. Romain. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert of Boston Sound. Artwork and animation by Phil Whitten. Theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Just search at Could Pod. For additional and exclusive content, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com/couldmurderapod. forward And don't forget to tell all of your friends. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the Acast Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content along with our private Discord server and live q as exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.